So um, I'm, I'm just going to forewarn you. I've been uh, sort of chastised about this in the past. We get to certain passages. We always say we teach verse by verse, you know, and everybody gets the impression like they read every single word. And uh, sometimes we don't. There's just like a lot of names that uh, are difficult uh, to pronounce and, you know, not memorable. Uh, you will be burdened by it. So I'm going to uh, skip over some of those things uh, this morning, uh, more for the purpose of condensing uh, the premise that is there rather than getting bogged down so that we see what it is the Lord is doing in these lives and how the application works for us. So Joshua chapter 15, verse 1 says, so this was the lot of the tribe of the children of Judah, remembering that how the land is prominently divided is through the, the drawing of lots. And it's, in this case, like the long or the short straw. They would have a representative, and, you know, the lots would be held, and they would draw out the one, and, you know, whichever way it went, the short straw or the long straw got that allotment of land. So that's how they're doing it is in a, in a randomized way receiving. There are a couple of instances where uh, promises have been made by the Lord, by Moses, and through the word of God, so that particularly Caleb and some others will look at, receive the allotment of land that was promised to them without any drawing of the straws. So here we have uh, the land of Judah is being described, drawn according to uh, the lot, as it says, continuing in verse 1, according to their families. The border of Edom to the wilderness of Zin southward was the extreme southern boundary. So um, this is what I've done, again, as an act of self-preservation. Uh, I, I haven't put the maps up. I'm not going to explain uh, I would encourage you to take these. I'll give brief descriptions of southern, western, eastern borders as you look at these things. But I would encourage you to take these passages and look physically at the maps and see where the boundaries are. Not that it's going to have a massive impact on your walk and your faith, but it will show you that a lot of what you're watching in the news is false. Okay. This land belongs to Israel. God has ordained it, and he has imparted it to them. So here we start the description, as I said, of the southern border. In verse 2, their southern border began at the shore of the Salt Sea, uh, sometimes referred to as the Dead Sea, from the bay that faces southward. Then it went out to the southern side of the ascent of Akrabim, past along to Zin, ascended on the south side of Kadesh Barnea, passed along to Hezron, went up to uh, Adar, and went around Karkea. From there, it passed toward Asmon and went out to the brook of Egypt. Some of your um, Bibles say the river of Egypt, and uh, that creates some confusion for certain teachers because it is not the Nile, okay? It is what is referred to as the Wadi of El Arish. Uh, so if you're looking at your map and you can find that, 
that's what we're talking about. A small body of water uh, that goes dry at certain times of the year because of the lack of rain in this region. So, that, you know, it's a wadi. At times it's dry, and at times it will flood out and actually be a river. And the border ended at the sea. This shall be the southern border. So they're referring to the Mediterranean. So a large chunk of land, and then in verse 5, it says, The east border was the Salt Sea as far as the mouth of the Jordan, and the border on the northern quarter began at the bay of the sea at the mouth of the Jordan. The border went up to Beth Hogla and passed north to Beth Arba, and the border uh, went up to the stone of Bohan, the son of of Reuben. Then the border went up toward Deber from the valley of Achor, and it turned northward toward Gilgal, which is before the ascent of Adumum, which is on the south side of the valley. The border continued toward the waters of En Shemesh and ended at En Rogel. The border went up to the valley of the sons of Hinnom southern slope of the Jebusite city, which is Jerusalem. Some of these things, as we're just reading through, uh, you know, just sound like a list of names. We'll get into a little bit of explanation here, particularly Jerusalem mentioned here. Uh, the Jebusites mentioned previously in our Old Testament study occupy, uh, you know, what becomes Jebus, which becomes Jerusalem uh, here as time passes. The border went up to the top of the mountain that lies before the valley of Hinnom westward, which is the end of the valley of Rephaim northward. Then the border went around from the top of the hill to the fountain of the waters of Naphtoah and extended to the cities of Mount Ephron. And the border went from Bela, which is Kirjath-Jerim, so previously as Bela and later known as Kirjath-Jerim, then the border turned westward from Bela to Mount Seir, passed along the side of Mount Jerim on the north, which is Keshalon, went down to Beth Shemesh and passed on to Timnah. The border went out to the side of Ekron northward, then the border went around to Shikron, passed along to Mount Bela, and extended to Jabniel. The border ended at the sea. So again, large territory, very disputed to this day. Um, I mentioned the fact that a week ago, our president is in Israel uh, politically pushing the idea of a two-state existence, Palestinian and Israel, God specifically saying that he will punish anyone who try, even tries to divide his land. Uh, that, unfortunately, by extension, is you and I, right? Because our nation is involved and our national leaders are involved in an effort to divide that land. Uh, we we want to do everything we can to promote Israel's existence and their solidarity. That all belongs to them. We are going to see Gaza mentioned specifically. 
most of the attacks, especially in the south, come out of the Gaza Strip. You know, so all of this are things that are very clarified in the scripture, and it's because of an ignorance or just a complete denial of God's word that we see all of this nonsense going on. Right? We've had historically nine, well, as many as 27, but nine very concerted efforts politically put forward to create a two-state nation there inside these borders. And every single time it is the Palestinians that violate the situation. Israel is trying uh, to create peace with their neighbors. All of their neighbors have openly declared as recently as three weeks ago that they want the complete annihilation of Israel. Genocide, total annihilation. No one can be there to exist, according to their neighbors. It's, it's outrageous that the world even entertains these other nations. Imagine, imagine if we were behaving that way as a nation, towards any other nation in the world. Imagine how outraged the UN would be. Imagine how outraged the other countries of the world would be if we were saying that nation cannot exist anymore. Not, not that they need to be dispersed. amongst. No, they need to be killed. That's the attitude of their neighbors. You know, the statement has long been said, and it's very true. If the Arab nations surrounding Israel would lay down their arms, there would be peace in the Middle East. If Israel were to lay down its arms, there would not be any Israel in the Middle East. That's, that's what they're dealing with continuously. And you should not be fooled by any political presentation, any news presentation that puts it any other way. The thing that will teach you uh, most adamantly about this is a trip to Israel. Go there and experience the land. Go, don't do it like I did. But, you know, go there. I was hospitalized the whole time. There. Go there and experience the land and experience the people and have conversations and understand. You know, it's, it's a really, it's a wonderful place and there are wonderful things going on and it all is from here. Now, before I move into Caleb and the discussion here, uh, this verse 13 and following, I guess I'll back up to 12 and move through, but in 13, we extend forward into Caleb. Caleb and Joshua, right, went into the land with 10 other spies. And you got to just read carefully how they're sent because it specifically uh, tells them, Moses, the Lord, and Moses tell all of these spies, I want you to go into the land and just see what is there that I have given to you and promised to you, right? Only two, Caleb and Joshua, come back and report, it's amazing what the Lord has given us. It's, it's wonderful what we have received from the Lord. We should go and experience God's conquest in the land. The other 10 all say there are giants in the land and they're going to kill us all and they're going to eat us like food. We're grasshoppers compared to them. Ten people turn millions of hearts against God's plan for 40 years. You guys, you want to be very careful about what voice you listen to and what you know opinion sways your heart. 
It is incredibly damaging things at times. Caleb, uh, in these statements, we talked about it last week, he specifically says, God promised me that land. I want to go in there, and I want to conquer the giants that are in that land because this is what God told me more than 40 years ago we were going to do. And now that we've got all of these naysayers out of the way, right? He doesn't even take massive tribes with him. He takes his family, and they just go in and conquer. They drive everyone out. Uh, I'm, I'm sort of spoiling the story, but I want you to see that as we move through this, other tribes much larger than the family of Caleb do not drive out the Canaanites. They do not conquer the people of the land. They leave them in place. They end up dealing with them as problematic for hundreds of years, right? Caleb goes in and just throttles everybody and accomplishes exactly what the Lord said needed to be done in the land. Why? You go back to chapter 14 and it says, because Caleb's heart was holy for the Lord. Completely given over to what the Lord wanted. Not just now in this moment, right? Rewind 40 years. His heart was completely given over then. And now he finally gets to act upon it. There's a powerful lesson for us in that. To follow the examples of Caleb and Joshua. Caleb and Joshua particularly receiving their promised land without drawing of lots. The places that belong to them. Verse 12, just to do it again, the west border was the coastline of the Great Sea. This is the boundary of the children of Judah all around according to their families. Now, verse 13, to Caleb, the son of Jephunneh, he gave a share among the children of Judah according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron. Uh, Arba was the father of Anak who was a giant, so it's named after this man. We have biblical record and historic record other that he was over 10 feet tall. Okay, um, Again, not just a Bible story. This is a historic account. This ceiling is not 10 feet tall. So that, that's an intimidating dude. When You, you know what I'm saying? You got somebody whose head is eight inches into the ceiling. Uh, when he comes in here, imagine how low he'd have to crouch, crouch to come through that door. You know, he'd be more than bent in half. Giant human being. Uh, Caleb says, no problem. That's what I'm here for. I want you to remember uh, Hebron is so historic for the nation of Israel. And here's Caleb saying, I want that land. I want you to give me what's promised me. Right? This is where. Abraham was and heard the voice of the Lord and remained and buried his wife and then was buried there himself. So much of the history of Israel is in Hebron. It's, it's interesting to think about that because Caleb is not actually Israeli, right? He's a Kenizzite who has been adopted in. So here's someone from another nation who takes Israel's religious heritage more serious seemingly than even the people of the land. He, he wants to own it. He wants to protect it. He drives out the enemy. He makes sure what God had mandated takes place there. There's an interesting concept in that, that someone who's been adopted in has more of a commitment to the Lord. Right? He who is forgiven much loves much. Right. So sometimes 
right? We see those that have just grown up in Christianity and been around it don't have the regard and the reverence for the word of God, for the Lord, for worship, as much as someone who was in the dregs of society, who came out of that and committed themselves to the Lord, and now they're fervent to see the things of the Lord being done in their own lives and the world and the community around them. We shouldn't be disheartened on either side of that. We should all seek to emulate what we see going on in the life of Caleb and how he behaves himself here. So, given the share amongst the children of Judah, according to the commandment of the Lord to Joshua, namely Kirjath Arba, which is Hebron, uh, Arba was the father of Anak, as we said. Caleb drove out the three sons of Anak from there, Shishai, Ahiman, and Talmai, the children of Anak. So he doesn't have any problem handling giants, uh, to say the least. Then he went up from there to the inhabitants of Deber. Formerly, the name of Deber was Kirjath Sefer. Caleb said, he who attacks Kirjath Sefer and takes it to him, I will give Oxa, my daughter, as wife. So arranged marriages, very common in the day. And the way it's described, apparently Oxa was quite a catch. Okay, uh, Her name... In our culture, not all that attractive, but, you know, I mean, that's okay. Uh, in this, there's a prize to be had. Now, listen, as we move forward and you see, I'll point out the wisdom of Oxa. That is the only thing that we see in this as an attribute to her. We don't know her age. We don't know her beauty. We don't know any of these outward things. This is a daughter in the family line of Caleb, and what you're going to see is she's wise. She really knows how to care for her circumstances, and that makes her valuable to her husband and to her family. So, uh, you know, the, the Lord looks on the heart, right? Not on the outward things. And uh, we've had enough experience in life to know that when you focus on the outward, a lot of times what's inside ends up burning you. Uh, that isn't uh, the focus of our human flesh, faithful things. So the promise made, so Othniel, the son of Kenaz, the brother of Caleb, took it and he gave him Oxa, his daughter, as wife. Now we're going to hear about Othniel as the first judge when we get into the book of Judges. And he does a great deal to restore the heart of the people to the Lord. Uh, you're seeing this family heritage in Caleb, uh, that those that are part of his family, he, he seemingly has a great impact on their spiritual life, maturity, and their condition. Um, uh, I'll just sidetrack just briefly, okay? Um, Hopefully, just briefly, um, my, my father, and I've shared it many times, and forgive me for you know, bearing my soul and being so repetitive, my father died when I was a child, a heavy equipment accident at work. My mother, uh, who you know, who's right here this morning, uh, raised my two older brothers and myself uh, as a widow, and uh, she 
very much imparted her faith to us. Uh, there were two conversations, uh, one more significant than the other, where her brothers, who I looked up to, my uncles, uh, had private conversations with me. And uh, one of them uh, took me aside. So a, a man nearly as old as my mother takes me aside when I'm about 11 and basically tells me my mother's a kook, a religious kook, and that I'm a very smart young man. And the day will come where I will be able to make my own decisions and I won't have to follow her misguided leading anymore. That birthed rebellion in my heart that took root. And by the age of 13, I just told her, I'm not having anything to do with your Christianity anymore. Cigarettes, marijuana, LSD, cocaine, crime, destruction. 19 years old, I've made a diabolical mess of my life, her life, and everyone I touch. And I have an encounter with Jesus Christ that proves that he's real. And I realize I have come off the rails. And I submit my life to Christ and I return to that faithful foundation. And from 19 years old until today, I have followed and served him. And that's why I'm standing here capable. Uh, we want to be very careful about our children, who has access to them, and how they affect them. Very, very careful. I go on and rage for the rest of the day about the influence of the government school systems. Okay? Referred to as public school systems, but they're not public because you're the public and you're not allowed to voice anything inside those quarters. Okay? They are government school systems. And we want to be very careful. If, there, if our children are enrolled there, you want to be very careful about what are they receiving? What are they hearing? What are they experiencing? You know, we, we, again, I could rage the rest of the day. We had a school here. One of the things that we did and we insisted upon was that the older grade students were always involved in and helping the younger grade students. We didn't have that segregation right, of classes, literally. That's very detrimental. When 8th graders only communicate with 8th graders all day long, right? there's a lot of garbage that just gets polluted around. There's all kinds of things that just recirculate. And destroy. You got a man right here who you can immediately see. That's a profoundly faithful man. And look at his family and the way that they are following that example. We have a very powerful influence in relationships that the Lord has given us. And even one conversation, one conversation from you as a godly influence can have a very powerful and positive effect upon a young life. As negative as that effect was in my life, you can have a positive influence.
Listen, I, 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 you know, talking about Caleb specifically, right? This old man is being very powerfully used by the Lord and having a tremendous influence on this society and this culture. If you're thinking, all my years are behind me, you know, 20s are gone, 30, 40, 50, 70 years old, wherever you are, right? One conversation can very powerfully affect a life. So please, please take yourself seriously as a child of God. You represent heaven. We represent our heavenly father. And our influence on other people can have a profound impact. Does that make sense to us? All right. So here we are, uh, Othniel and Oxa, verse 18. It was so when, he, when she came to him, she persuaded him to ask her father for a field. Listen, male pride can destroy so much, right? Yes, we're to be the leader of both our home and the church, men, we are called to do that. But women have insight that we profoundly need. Uh, the example I always put forward is, here's Abraham. He's already thinking incorrectly, and his wife says, God's promises are not going to be fulfilled the way God said. So why don't you... Be sexually intimate with my maidservant and have a child through her. He says, that's a great idea. We're still paying for that decision. Okay. The daughter, or excuse me, the son of Hagar has given birth to all of the Arab nations and now the conflict between Israel and the Arab nations is birthed from that one decision. Imagine, imagine how different the world might be if he had not heeded the voice of his wife. Now, later, same <clears throat> relationship um, is now tormenting his own son, and she comes to him and says, we need to get rid of the handmaid and her child. And he's brokenhearted because that's his son. Ishmael is his son. And he is tormented over the thought of losing that relationship. But the Lord there tells Abraham, now you need to heed your wife. And he does. And he puts Hagar away and no longer has relationship with her in any way. Now, here's the summary. We need to, as godly men, know when to lead our wives, right? Because they will lose their minds. Forgive me, ladies, but you're just a deeply emotional people making deeply emotional decisions uh, need guidance. Okay, so leading. Would you agree, ladies, that Hagar was a bad suggestion? Right. Okay. So in that case, he should have led his wife out of that temptation uh, later. When he does not want to follow her, but she's suggesting that he needs to get rid of Hagar, he heeds. He's told by the Lord, heed your wife. So as the head of our household, learning when to lead and learning when to heed our wives is critically important. 
It takes a very gentle spirit in a man to do both of those things. Okay, got to be extremely strong. You have to be very determined, but you are going to have to lead. It's a thing that creates a circumstance. Here, Othniel hears Oxa and goes, uh, you know, encouraging him to ask for a field. So she dismounted from her donkey, and Caleb said to her, What do you wish? So wait, we've got a question that came from Othniel, really, Oxa to Othniel, to Caleb. Now, as she approaches, Caleb says, What do you want? Okay, I think without much extrapolation, uh, what you see is Caleb has a deep relationship with Oxa, his daughter. He already knows what's coming. (laughs) There's a question that's about to be asked. She's got that look on her face that he's seen all throughout her life, that he knows there's a big request coming right here. There's something she's going to ask. What do you wish? She answered, give me a blessing since you have given me land in the south. Wait a minute. It was given to Othniel. Well, indirectly, right? She asked, encouraged her husband to ask. It was given. You've given me land in the south, and I really appreciate that. Give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. Uh, just slightly veiled behind this from our English eyes is a Hebrew story that's really quite unique because in this situation, Othniel's name is actually translated the lion. The lion, who is part of the tribe of Judah, has taken a wife. She has requested through the husband land. Are we not waiting for the promised land ourselves? And then when the question comes directly to her, what does she ask for? Springs of water, right? That would well up out of us and be a raging torment. It's really a beautiful little picture that's encapsulated there. So uh, Othniel, again, as I said, becomes one of, he becomes the first judge and very prominent in the history of Israel. As we get into the book of Judges, we'll examine that more. So now give me also springs of water. So he gave her the upper springs and the lower springs. If you're going to have flocks, if you're going to have herds, if you're going to have land, if you're going to perform agriculture, uh, growing crops, you need water, not just land. And she recognizes the need there. 20, this was the inheritance of the tribe of uh, the children of Judah, according to their families. I'm going to skip a bunch of these names. The cities of the limits of the tribes of the children of Judah toward the border of Edom in the south were, and you get all of those names, 33 in the lowland, down at verse 36, 14 cities with their villages. Verse 41, 16 cities with their villages. End of 43, nine cities with their villages. Ekron with its town, verse 45, towns and villages from Ekron, to the sea, all that lay near Ashdod with their villages, Ashdod with its towns and villages. And here is Gaza listed with its towns and villages as far as the brook of Egypt. Again, this is the Wadi El Erish and the Great Sea with its coastline, uh, referencing the, the Mediterranean there. Verse 48 And in the mountain country, down to the end of verse 
51, 11 cities and their villages, the end of 54, 9 cities with their villages, the end of 57, 10 cities with their villages, the end of 59, 6 cities with their villages, verse 60, Kirjath Baal, which is Kirjath Jerem, and Rabbah, two cities with their villages in the wilderness of Beth Arba, uh, Midden, uh, Sakeka, Nibshan, the city of Salt, and Gedi, six cities with their villages. So very large territory, tremendous number of cities given to all of these tribes. Verse 63, as for the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, so the Canaanites, the Jebus who had occupied the city of Jerusalem, the children of Judah could not drive them out, but the inhabitants dwelt with their children of Judah at Jerusalem to this day when this was written. If we jump through biblical history 400 years, we come to 2 Samuel, particularly at chapter 5, beginning at verse 6. It says, David then led his men to Jerusalem to fight against the Jebusites, the, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. So 400 years they've been unable to purge them out from the city, the original inhabitants of the land who were living there. The Jebusites taunted David, David saying, you'll never get in here. Even the blind and lame could keep you out. So, you know, we got people here in this city that have to be guided around and carried around and they'd be able to defend this city. And realistically, the way the city is constructed and designed, uh, it is a fortress and it is easily defended. And that takes place a few times throughout history. And uh, they take care of uh, those that come against them uh, quite easily. So they've got this attitude as rebellious to God Canaanites who are saying anybody tries to get in here will be able to handle them easily. They're mocking David. For the Jebusites thought they were safe. Verse 7, 2 Samuel chapter 5, but David captured the fortress of Zion, which is now called the city of David. Verse 8, on the day of the attack, David said to his troops, I hate those lame and blind Jebusites. Now, just for clarity's sake, David doesn't hate the lame and the blind. Okay, uh, He's reversing their mockery, right? They've all said the lame and the blind inside the city could defend this city. And David is saying, well, since it's only lame and blind men, uh, why don't you guys go in there and capture the city for us, is essentially. So continuing, whoever attacks them should strike by going into the city through the water tunnel. And there's some debate about what's being reverse, uh, referred to there, but that is essentially what they did. They went up through the water tunnel into the city. This is the origin of the saying, the blind and lame may not enter the house, uh, the Jebusites and those who are rebellious against the Lord. It's not actually God's forbaying the lame and the blind. So uh, David made the fortress his home. He called it the city of David. He extended the city, starting at the supporting terraces and working inward. David became more and more powerful because the Lord God of heaven, our Lord God of heaven's army 
was with him. So his strength and his conquest is attributed to the strength and the capability of, of the Lord, not his own prowess. And I think that's very important historically. We see Israel uh, expelling its enemies, even in modern battles, and very often, you know, it's sort of portrayed like, oh, you know, the Mossad, oh, you know, that those armies, oh, Israel, they're formidable. Uh, every single time they win, it's miraculous. Okay, the Lord is the one who preserves them. They are hardy people. They are brave beyond comparison. But in the end, it is the Lord who sustains them. It's, it's not their own uh, approach. Now, I found this quote from a great English teacher, Alan Redpath. Um, he puts some things in order and then makes a statement. On the same principle, he said, King Jesus conquers old strongholds when he becomes king over our lives. Territory that should have been given to him long ago is now conquered. I want to say to you in the name of the Lord Jesus that there is no habit that has gone so deep, but that the power of the blood of Jesus can go deeper. There is no entrenchment of sin that has gone so far that the power of the risen Lord by his Holy Spirit can go further. We do not want to allow compromise to conquer us. If we know and we have heard what the Lord has said, regardless of all our previous defeats, understand that the Holy Spirit still wants and will provide victory. It requires our submission to him. So now uh, chapter 16. I've got just over 12 minutes. It's only 10 verses, so bear with me. We're not going to be here until 3. <clears throat> Done by 2.30 at least. So 16 uh, verse 1. The lot fell to the children of Joseph from the Jordan by Jericho to the waters of Jericho on the east to the wilderness that goes up from Jericho through the mountains to Bethel. Then went out from Bethel to Luz, passed along the border of the Archites at Adaroth, and went down westward to the boundary of the Jephelites, as far as the boundary of the lower Beth Horon to Gezer at the end of the sea. So the children of Joseph, Manasseh, and Ephraim took their inheritance. So just to quickly remind us, Joseph had been betrayed by his brothers, taken into captivity in Egypt, elevated to prominence. There had two sons when his father arrived. His father chose Manasseh and Ephraim as his own sons. Not that there was an especially deep relationship there, but that they would be part of his inheritance. What he had to offer his sons as inheritance would fall to Manasseh and Ephraim. So now, uh, being included in that way, the sons of Joseph take Joseph's place, and this is their inheritance that's being marked out. They're receiving the blessings of the Lord here. We'll uh, move through some of this quickly. Verse 5, the border of the children of Ephraim, according to their families, was, and you see it all described there down to verse 9. The separate cities for the children of Ephraim were among the inheritance of the children of Manasseh. All the cities 
with their villages. So you see them summarily receiving their territory. In verse 10, it says, And they did not drive out the Canaanites who dwelt in Gezer, but the Canaanites dwell among the Ephraimites to this day and have become forced labor. So sounds like they've dealt with these people to a certain degree, but all throughout history, Israel and all the commentators say, look, if you could subdue these people to make them obedient to you, why didn't you do what the Lord told you and either drive them out or kill them? Why did you leave them in place? That's compromise, isn't it? When we have something the Lord has told us and we go through some kind of settlement spiritually and we allow certain things and people and influences to remain in our lives. Listen, you know it's compromise when it's staggering your relationship with the Lord. That, that's very plain and simple. Not calling for you to be some hard-nosed jerk. Okay, the issue is you have to maintain your relationship with the Lord. And when things stumble you, when things compromise you, it's time for those things to go. Wherever you realize them, if it's on the onset, get rid of them. If it's years later, that's where it has to be dealt with. When the reality is this is compromise. This is killing me. This is costing me. This is costing my family. I need to deal with this. Yeah, you see in the book of Judges, uh, chapter 1, verse 29, they're still dealing with that compromise. And the implication in Judges chapter 1, verse 29, is now the Canaanites that they've left in place have begun to conquer them. We leave things in place, and it will always conquer us. Right? The reversal of example, just to close this out, Caleb, chapter 14, verse 8. We've already referenced it a couple times. Nevertheless, my brethren went up. Caleb is speaking with me. Made the heart of the people melt. I went up with 12. Joshua and myself, Caleb came back, gave good report. 10 people came back, melted the heart of the people. He then says, but I wholly followed the Lord my God. Caleb wholly followed the Lord his God. 40 years old. Wander in the desert for an additional 40. When he receives his property, his land, he says, not only do I still have my fervence and my capability, he says, I have my fervence and my capability to go to war. And I pointed out when we studied chapter 14, he said to, to go out and come in. And that's a militaristic terminology that says, I will go out, I will conduct myself in war, and I will return victoriously. I'm going to be able to come back home. 80, 85 years old. This man is saying, it's not time for retirement. It's not time for the fishing pole and the lake full of trout and the green grass and the easy life. It's time for the sharpened sword and shield is what he's saying. Listen, regardless of how you feel about yourself right now, when you look at the world around you, do you not recognize it's time for war? This, the world has gone stark raving mad. 
And spiritually, we need to engage ourselves, right? Some people are like, yeah, we need to go physically fight. You're a lunatic, okay? I'll just say that as lovingly as I can and as bluntly as I can, right? That's what Peter did in the garden, right? Draw the sword, hack off ears. It's the ears we want. I want my message to go in the ear. Right? If you've hacked somebody's ear off with the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, you failed. You failed at the job. Right? Hopefully what I'm doing right now as I sit here and I give this message is I'm surgically, with the fine work of that sword, opening your ear. Opening your ear to its ability to hear. That you're understanding what the Word of God is saying. Our culture needs the Word of God. We need to learn how to deliver that. And that may be trial and error for you. You tried, you messed up, you failed, you cut somebody's ear off. Find somebody else with a capable ear. Try again, right? Eventually, you'll become a very skilled surgeon who, who can remove the callus from someone's hearing and allow them to hear the word of God. This is how we're going to affect our culture, you guys, right? How many times have we talked about Romans 10, 17? Faith comes by hearing, hearing the word of God. Present it simply. Present it small. Get it into people's lives. Let them take it. You know, bottom of my uh, slip when we go out to dinner, I usually just write John 3.16, you know, God bless and then leave a good tip, you know, right? If you leave a crummy tip, then that closes their ears, right? You know, they see us pray. We talk to them everywhere we can. Grocery store, checkout line, gas pump, you know, deep conversations, small conversations. Should be scattering seed if we can. Everywhere we go, little things. Uh, the world takes notice, and, and we want to inherit Right? What belongs to our Heavenly Father. We want to bring the people, right, into His presence. So hopefully this makes sense to us this morning. I pray that you're able to cling to it and use it in your daily life. Amen? Amen. All right. Well, let's stand and we'll pray. If you can stay at all, look, if you didn't know that the fellowship lunch was going on and you're thinking, I didn't bring anything. I was out in that kitchen before, and there is a mountain of food out there, and there's a whole new playground to hang out on, picnic tables, umbrellas, and we're going to get some more chairs out. So stay, if you can, at all, and fellowship, and let the Lord knit us together as a family. All right? All right. Father, we thank you very much for this place. We thank you very much for your word. We thank you very much for the way it works in our lives, has worked in our lives. Help us to be submitted to you. Accomplish what you want to in each one of us, that we could rejoice in the building in numbers and in strength of your kingdom. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.